Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two of Conversations That Matter, the podcast. We're focusing on Pride Month and occupational therapy, allyship, and appreciating diversity. My name is Justine Jecker, and I'll be your host for today. The purpose of this week's episode is to dive into topics related to occupational justice for LGBTQ2S plus individuals, the unique needs of queer and trans folks when accessing healthcare, and considerations on how we may become allies with these communities. We have two occupational therapists with us today, Kaylee and Holly, who will discuss the importance of Pride Month from an occupational therapy perspective. Kaylee Jenkins, she, her, is a mother, musician, and occupational therapist. She has practiced in geriatrics and acute mental health, and currently works as a clinical therapist in tertiary mental health. Kaylee is an Irish-Canadian settler and conducts her life and work on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Squamish, Watuth, and Muskiam nations. When she's not working, you can find Kaylee writing music, making a mess in the kitchen, or trying every trick in the book to make her daughter laugh. Holly is an occupational therapist who has worked in private practice, public health, and is now working non-clinically. Holly uses they, them pronouns and will be pursuing a PhD starting in September at the University of British Columbia, exploring the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and disability, amongst other aspects of identity and the resulting influence on occupational engagement. Welcome to both Kaylee and Holly, and thank you for being here today. And I'm gonna get us started with uh, one question and we'll see where this goes, but how do you both feel about your gender uh, representation and presentation, expression, and how this has impacted your work and how you exist in the world? I'll maybe um, just tackle that question. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really huge question. Um, and I think um, it's one that I'm, you know, constantly trying to learn more about um, as a as a cisgendered woman. You know, my gender presentation is very visually congruent with my gender identity, and so that you know it affords me a lot of privilege. And that um, you know I never have to correct someone for misgendering me, and that's that's something that can be you know incredibly difficult or um, at times even dangerous to do. Um, I think, of course, there's, you know, some inherent disprivilege in identifying and presenting as a woman, and I'd be remiss to not note that it does greatly influence my interactions with the world around me. Um, I think as a, as a highly educated young woman, as a therapist, I, to some, um, to some extent, experience imposter syndrome, and that presents in so many different ways. I often feel the need to like, validate my work verbally to my colleagues, um, to apologize when I don't need to. I feel like I'm constantly advocating for my role on the team, and I often introduce myself with my credentials, which I hate. Um, I think that um, I and, and all women really, to some extent, have been the recipient of you know microaggressions and sexism and inappropriate conduct over the years. And there's a lot of unlearning, I think, that I need to do in order to become more firm um, in my knowing that I deserve to take up space, um, especially at work, and and to acknowledge the expertise that I I bring to the table as a clinician. As a clinician, so it's just really. 
an ongoing and I feel like forever, forever process to understand how how my gender presentation and expression impacts my life and my work as well. I think you raised some really interesting points, Kaylee, and I have a very different experience myself. So it's actually interesting that we're on this episode together because my gender presentation over my life has not very well matched my gender identity. And so that's been a process for me of unlearning and exploring and discovering um, what is true for me and how to express myself in an authentic way that has put me in some situations that are dangerous and scary and having to correct people and whether it's interactions with clients or interactions with colleagues, it's been a journey of about four years now from starting school, going through placements, and now um, in my professional practice, interacting with clients in different ways. As my gender representation or gender presentation has changed, my interactions in the world and how people interact with me has changed profoundly. And that's something that I didn't necessarily expect. So I was presenting as a cisgender woman. Um, I, I was I had long hair, I dressed somewhat femininely, but not overly. Um, and then as that has changed, I've noticed that I've been gaining privileges that I was not awarded previous and I have lost other privileges. So, for example, at this point, if I'm at work and I go into the women's washroom, um, if there are other colleagues in there that I don't know, I do get looks and I do get questions and things like that. And so that is a privilege that has been taken away from me is using the washroom safe, safely without question at this point. Um, and that's just one example of uh, something that I hadn't even thought about earlier on in my life. And now at this point, it's it's changed a lot. But then I've been given privileges in other ways, such as I'm now given way more space to speak when I'm talking with clients and they um, default to me for the answer. Even if I'm with a colleague who is a woman, presents as a woman, and is way more knowledgeable than me. Now that I present masculine of center, people default to me for knowledge. And that's so new for me because I, the reason I'm working with a colleague sometimes is because they're training me. I've, I've gone through a few different jobs in the past year. And it, during the training process, I'm the learner in that situation. So to be to have it assumed that I am more knowledgeable because I'm presenting more masculinely has just been a really interesting learning experience. and it's caused a lot of internal conflict and reflection for me. Um, so that's, it's been interesting, I would say. Um, and then in terms of representation, I don't see a lot of individuals in my day-to-day -day work um, previously that represent my own gender. I, I don't see myself reflected in society that often. It's slowly changing, which is great, um, but it's, like you said, Kaylee, it's kind of a lifelong process of learning and unlearning and um, it, it impacts my day-to-day -day existence. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I like that you use the word journey. I think that's a really key piece. It just feels like there's so much information and knowledge about ourselves and the way that we present and also that we're received by others. Like it, it just feels like it would be impossible to ever completely exhaust that knowing. Um, I really like the use of the word journey. I think I'm going to use that from now on when I describe my my gender presentation and expression. Mm, yeah, I call it my gender journey. Oh, I love that alliteration and everything. That's so great. <laughs> well, Holly, you're really making me think, and, and Kaylee as well, in your sharings of this, because um, 
it just something just came back to me that honestly I haven't thought about in about 10 years but um, throughout my childhood often when attendance was taken um, for the first day of school or going to camp my name's Justine and you'd think that that is a feminine name but nine times out of ten if I was being introduced for the first time I was always called Justin and and it's just really interesting to think of that now because I do identify as cisgender, white, heterosexual, um, but for so so much of my life, um, and I guess just where I was growing up, Justine was not a common name. I was always assumed to be male before I introduced myself as female. And um, Holly, when you said how that's impacted your opportunities and even just your privileges, um, I remember going to several interviews in, in my adolescent years where the, the employer thought they were interviewing a boy and not a girl. And I, and I now wonder, you know, wow, was it because they thought it was a boy? <laughs> um, and, and that's, it's just really powerful. I think in just your short sharings that's, um, that's come up for me. Um, I'm, I'm wondering with, with this month, June being Pride Month and our focus on LGBTQ plus communities, um, can you both describe for us your comfort level in doing advocacy work in this area that's either within your practice or outside of your practice? Sure, um, I can start us off on that question and thank you for sharing that Justine, your previous comment about your name being mistaken for a male name. I think that's something that yeah, that's going to stick with me. I'm going to think about that. It's such an interesting thing. Um, so in terms of advocacy work, for me, there's layers to this. Um, as someone who identifies within the LGBTQ2S plus community, and then also my future PhD research being centered in this area. Um, so the layers for me are, I try and do advocacy work on a smaller scale. We call it small A or little A advocacy um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And this can be something that seems as simple as um, advocating for somebody to use the right pronouns. If I've heard somebody misgender another person and I know that their pronouns are different than what's being used, um, advocating in smaller conversations or within my family, doing a bit of education here and there. If I hear comments that maybe are discriminatory unintentionally, of course, um, I don't think many people intend to cause harm with their comments, but it does happen just from lack of education or perhaps misunderstandings. Uh, so there's that level of advocacy and then at the workplace, um, right now I'm not working clinically but I'll refer back to when I was, I was working for a health authority and I would do some advocacy work there with language. Uh, I felt that's where I had the largest say most realistically. So I was doing things like requesting changes on our assessment and intake forms because they only had two options and it was mislabeled so it was you could be male or female as your gender, but male and female are actually just two of the sexes and intersex is a third option. And then for gender, it should be man, woman, or non-binary, trans, or other. And so I would educate management on why we need to change our intake forms, but I was relatively new and only stayed a short time at that job. So I felt a bit uneasy because with advocacy work, it's hard not to step on any toes or at least feel like you're coming into territory that maybe people will want to push back on. So for me, I felt like I was always towing the line of, I want I want to be liked. I think we all want to be liked, but I also want to make change happen. So finding the approach that was going to work for that was a big part of the advocacy work that I tried to do. Um, but those are a few examples of things that I've tried to do. And I'm really curious to hear from Kaylee as well. 
That's so great, Holly. Um, yeah, and also, Justine, I'm just circling back to what you said as well. It's still it's still on my mind that um, the notion of names and how those play into our interactions in the world. Um, that's something I'm going to think about as well, because I think unconsciously that that was a huge burden for me when I was naming my daughter. Um, you know, I had these names that I really liked, um, but that were hyper feminine. And there were times when I stopped and thought, you know, is this name going to impact her privilege and her opportunities in the world? And I don't think that I recognized until this conversation why that was and, and why it was troubling me so much. So that's definitely going to be on my mind as well. Um, but this is a really great question too. And I think, you know, as, as Holly mentioned, there's, when, you, when, when you're working with advocacy, there's always that sense of, you know, how do I do this delicately? Should I do this delicately? Should I do this loudly? What's the best way to approach this? Um, and I think that really at the end of the day, that's the, you know, what allyship comes down to is that, that, that notion of being comfortable with being uncomfortable um, in order to advocate for marginalized groups. Um, so I think, you know, as a, as a member of the queer community, um, Pride Month to me is a time of year to be really mindful um, of, you know, the queer and, and trans women of color who have made the world a safer place um, for us queer folks. I feel, you know, very privileged to live in a time and place in the world where queerness is, you know, to some extent increasingly accepted. Um, and that's something that I strive to be cognizant of and, you know, bring um, bring forward in my advocacy um, Holly mentioned little a advocacy, and I think that's so key, especially in the workplace, you know, call, calling in people around us to bring awareness to how their comments are perceived. That's really huge. Um, little things like having a pronoun pin visually obvious, um, you know, on your uniform at work, just um, that says, you know, I'm a safe place to to discuss your identity. And I think that's that's really important. Um, something that I really love about Pride Month too, um, as a therapist, is I just find that increased visibility of queerness that comes along with Pride Month often kickstarts conversations about um, sexual orientation and identity and expression. So it's definitely a time of year where you can find me, you know, plastering art that celebrates queerness and posters for the queer community, uh, resources all over the walls of my workplace, just to, to you know, in invite people into those conversations and make it explicit that it's a safe place to have them. Um, you know, I think um, 2S LGBTQQIA plus advocacy work will always be relevant to OT practice because there will always be members. Keely, I really like that you brought up the point about um, Black trans people and Black queer people from how, I don't know how to say it articulate, articulately because you did such a great job, but I think using that as the basis of any queerness that exists in the world today wouldn't be possible without those who advocated so loudly in his in the past and in history and taking those risks to do that and so our ability to kind of choose when we're out choose when we're not choose when we advocate choose when we don't that's all very much a privilege and i think it's important for us to recognize that and when you mention that it's making me reflect on that as well and when I said the comment of, I, I choose when to advocate because I want to be liked, there's so much privilege packed into that statement. And it's because my I don't want my job to be taken away from me if I advocate too much and come across as somebody who is maybe causing conflict in the workplace. But again, that's a privilege to even have the ability to say, I'm going to advocate today. Um, I'm going to take a risk because people in the past, whether it's a Black trans woman or um 
yeah, a person of color who was queer, it was their day-to-day -day life and they couldn't necessarily choose when they're out and choose when they're not. So thank you for kind of bringing that to light. And, and it's a moment of reflection for me as well. And uh, hopefully for some of our listeners. So just wanted to highlight that and thank you again for that comment. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have one last question for you two today, and I feel like we could go on for an hour easily, but I'm just, you know, in, in hearing about the discussion around queerness and um, those experiencing transgender, I'm just wondering, thinking as a day-to-day -day healthcare provider and thinking outside of Pride Month, um, when does it become important to bring queerness into the OT equation and is there ever a time that it is not as relevant or is this something that um, when similar to when we're thinking persons of you know BIPOC, BIPOC communities and persons of different background is this something we should just always be cognizant of? I hate to start my response with it depends <laughs> but I feel like it, it really so depends right um Queerness is important and deserving of space, you know, regardless of the context, whenever an individual identifies that their queerness is something they want to bring to the table. So, you know, for some of our clients, queerness is at the absolute heart of their goals, challenges and identity and identity. And it would be impossible to effectively engage in occupational therapy with, as without inviting that queerness into our work together. Um, and for other clients, queerness is not a therapeutic priority and it's, you know, something that we don't bring into our conversations as a result. Um, I think as, as therapists too, we have to be cognizant to the fact that there is a large population of, of queer individuals that we work with who do not feel safe to identify their queerness, talk about their queerness, or even consider their queerness or name it. Um, so I think it's, it's really important to not be prescriptive in our care of queer clients and to make any assumptions. Um, I, I always try to allow the individual to take the lead on whether or not they like to welcome that part of themselves into our therapeutic work. Yeah, and I would definitely agree with the starting the, the comment with it depends. Um, and I think for me, it's not something that I can separate from my own lens that I bring as an occupational therapist, because as somebody who lives a queer and a trans experience every day, it, it's it would be really hard for me to remove that from these interactions. So I don't necessarily project it onto my clients because I was previously working in a location that was mostly affluent, white, straight couples, and it wasn't really part of my day-to-day -day work from my client's perspective, but it still informed how I carry out my practice. Um, and so if I were working with queer and trans folks and they come forward and it is part of the therapeutic process, meaning that maybe they need help with I don't know whether it's ADL, so if they're needing help dressing, I need to be competent in trans care or, or sexuality or sexual functioning. And if they're choosing that they want to integrate this into our therapeutic relationship and the therapeutic goals, then for sure it's definitely going to be part of the conversation. And um, other times if it's somebody had a hip replacement and we're focusing on the orthopedic recovery, well, perhaps their queerness isn't something that they necessarily feel they want to integrate into the conversation, and that's totally fine too. So I think bringing it back to what Kaylee said about having something like a pronoun pin or a rainbow lanyard or any signs or symbols that you're a safe space, it, it creates that space for the client to kind of choose, is this a place where I want to disclose something? Maybe not. 
Um, selective disclosure is a really powerful thing for queer folks, and if they want to disclose something to you and feel you're a safe place to do that, they will. They will bring it up into the conversation, or you can disclose your own and say, my pronouns are, and then say your pronouns, and then that invites someone to share theirs, and then the conversation can go from there. So I think it would be really hard to say that it should always be part of the conversation, because if someone's early on into their gender or sexuality journey, um, it may be too raw or too um, a, too much of a vulnerable thing to dive right into with a new therapist. So as you build rapport with somebody, there's a chance it may come to light and become more important. And that's just part of the rapport build, building process. And it can be thought of the same as other identities that perhaps are less visible for some people that they tell you later on. And you sometimes we have clients where we learn things about them later that we had no idea. And it's because they've chosen to share those parts of themselves with us. So depends on the interaction and the state of the rapport building process, I would say as well. Totally. I, I really like that you use the, way, the word choice so many times in your response. I think that's such a, a key part of trauma-informed care. Um, and, you know, for a lot of, of people who are members of these communities, there there is that a, a sense of not always, always ha having had choice um, and I think it's just so important to to offer that um, and to to take their lead. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'll briefly just share an experience I had with a different health profession. So I was going to see somebody for a therapeutic reason, and I was the, in the role of a patient, which was odd because I'm used to being in the role of clinician. And this was not an OT. I'm not going to name the profession because part of our podcast etiquette is not to name any any other professions that where the interaction didn't go so well. Anyways, I was trying to receive care for something not related to queerness or identity or anything at all. I just had a really bad pain near my ribs and was trying to get the appropriate treatment. And rather than using a trauma-informed trauma approach, this clinician did an extensive like full medical history interview and asked me probably in about five or six different ways if there was any other trauma or anything else I can think of that I I think could be influencing the amount of pain and I'm I was thinking okay they're trying to get me to, to tell them any psychological things that I'm experiencing that may be in, influencing my pain but in a way that felt so inappropriate that I left feeling just so irritated and honestly I was a little bit triggered and traumatized by that because you can't really dig up somebody's identity by asking them the same question in five different ways. So that was a huge moment of reflection for me, thinking, wow, that felt so invasive. Even though they didn't ask me directly, they tried in so many ways, and now I don't want to disclose that at all, even if there was something. So I brought that forward into my own practice. And if something doesn't come to light, leave it alone. And if it needs to be brought up later, the person knows you're a safe space to do that. So just wanted to share that bit, that example, because it was awkward for me and it's something that I've really learned from. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm, I'm really sorry that happened. It sounds like a, a perfect example of not um, or of somebody uh, not listening to what you were saying or, or weren't saying. Um, I think it's really cool that you've reframed that um, at the, something you'd like to bring into your practice that, you know, that really speaks to how self-reflective and wonderful you are, Holly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kaylee, for that. Um, and I'm sorry, Justine, I'm going to steal your spotlight for a second and I'm going to ask the next question because it just came to mind. But um, Kaylee, have you had any moments where you have really 
learned from either your own experience or an interaction with a client directly or another clinician telling you something that has been like a huge aha moment for you? Oh, that's such a big question. <laughs> I always struggle with aha moment questions because I feel like so much of my learning happens in retrospect. And I, I don't think that I've been practicing long enough to have really reached a, a retrospective perspective yet. Um, you know, I, I can earnestly say that I, I have learned more from my clients than I ever could have learned in school. And I think for me that that's really the huge takeaway. Um, you know, it's it's not so much an aha learning moment as it is a slow collection of knowing and being in an authentic space with the people I work with. And I think, you know, working in tertiary mental health, I'm really fortunate in that I, I get to know people over a longer period of time. So, you know, we're able to really develop that rapport and I'm able to establish myself as a safe space and that, that lends itself to really authentic conversations. And, you know, while no specific conversation is jumping to mind right now. I feel that the collection of each of those conversations has just slowly contributed um, to my knowing of, of my practice and not just of my practice, but just of my own positionality. Um, you know, I've been I've been called out and, and called in to some really, really important conversations, both both by clients and, and colleagues. And I'm always really, really grateful for those opportunities for learning because so often you know, they're not opportunities that that are extremely explicit but they're more you know moments that you you go home and reflect on and in a quiet safe space later on and i feel that i've been afforded a lot of those opportunities at work so that's something i'm, I'm super grateful for okay i just need to say that answer is like making me almost get choked up thank you so much for sharing that and calling it a, a collection of experiences or a collection of knowings Oh my gosh, I'm very, very um, touched by that answer, Kaylee. I think it's it's true that we haven't been practicing for that long. So being able to reflect along the way and then over time, it kind of accumulating these experiences and these stories that create a new narrative as we move forward. And um, I think the saying is, as we when we know better, we do better. And that's something that I always strive for. So thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, of course. I, I love how you phrased that too. It's it's a journey, right? All of these things, they're, they're just a part of our journey. I want to thank you both for, um, I could be a fly on the wall for hours, um, and I'm learning so much. I feel that, you know, we've titled this session Allyship and Appreciating Diversity, and um, Ally, allyship has a long way to go. And I think with your story, Holly, that's a really good example of um, somebody maybe thinking that they're trying to be an ally. And I think we do need to unlearn, as you identified, Kaylee, earlier in the discussion, um, in order to move forward and to be willing to make mistakes. And sometimes just to be able to ask the question, I, I think I think there's so much fear um, and people who may not identify as queer or trans or gay or lesbian feel that, um, you know, if they ask the question, then something terrible is going to happen or uh, it's just going to shut down the conversation. And I think more allies need to be aware that asking the question is actually how the real conversation can start. And, and I really do think that that's a conversation that matters. And um, I, you know, for me, um, walking away from this podcast, this has just become a part of what I want to bring into my everyday. Um, 
before this podcast, Holly had introduced me to the pronouns and the use and understanding gender terms. And um, that that's just been such a huge eye opener. Um, and I think there's just so much to learn because, you know, I think we for those who are not identifying um, in one of the pride categories, it's you you can have friends of different backgrounds. That doesn't mean you know what they're experiencing. And having grown up in a family myself where people identify as being gay and lesbian, I kind of thought I understood what all that meant. Um, and it's so it's so humbling and it's great to be in a place where um, you're right at you know, at the beginning, at the beginning of the learning journey. Um, so I really want to thank you both, Kaylee and Holly. I hope that we can actually bring you both back for a part two of this discussion in the future. It doesn't have to be during Pride Month. Um, I think there's so many more things we can talk about. And um, thank you both for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a great conversation. Thank you for hosting us, Justine, and I would be more than happy to come back and extend this conversation once, twice, or 10 more times. These are things that I could talk about for hours, so I'm grateful to be here as always, and I look forward to the next one. Me too.